come on in. Let's start here. What's your, what's your self-narrative getting out of bed this morning? At the alarm clock, you're like, here we go again. Or you're like, mm, here we go again. I mean, what's your self-narrative? Are you just constantly thinking like fearful thoughts? Are you like scared? The sky is falling self-narrative. Are you uh, uneasy, shaken, nervous about what's going to happen? If uncertainty about your past or the future, is that your self-narrative? Your, your, what you're telling yourself? Has your day or your week been filled with anxious thoughts, dreadful thoughts about our society and our culture, what's happening in our country and what's happening in your career and your future? The, the stories we tell ourselves, how we talk to ourselves about ourselves, define our life. There's a, there's a, how your self-narrative really has a trajectory to what is happening and what will happen in your life. You're like, wait a second. I thought this was a Bible church. It, it is going somewhere. So hang with me. And so your self-talk, this conversation that's happening in your mind every single day has consequences. You can think of yourself as the hero of the story you're writing. You can think of yourself as the victim of the story you're writing. You can think of yourself as the healer in the story, healing your friends and your family. But when you understand this self-narrative that is occurring in between your ears, you can start changing it. And when you unlock the self-narrative, it unlocks not only your past, but it unlocks your future potential as a follower of Christ. Today is the last sermon series of our Summer of Psalms, where we've been kind of looking at these different psalms and about emotions and thoughts and feelings and how to process life, the good parts of life and the bad parts of life. But today's psalm, Psalm 18, this covers this, this whole book of psalms in a great summary, an amazing topic addressing the emotions and feelings and the thought life we have as Christians. So let's pray. What we're about to embark on of quoting God is a very heavy thing, and I don't want to do it wrong. So let's pray. Let's pray. God, I thank you for today. Thank you for the word of God in Psalm 18. I said, just give us wisdom as we learn to navigate this narrative in our heads. Help us to give us wisdom to think rightly of ourselves and of you and of others. I said, just give us an understanding of Psalm 18. Help us to really understand what David was writing about, Lord. I said, just really lead us in our time today. We need you to make this time worthwhile. Unlock our minds and unlock the mind of David and the mind of one of the authors of the Bible, how to think correctly about life that we're living. Give us wisdom and help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Psalm 18 is on page 258 in your house Bible. Grab that, pull it out, and you can take that home if you don't own a Bible. It's one of the longer Psalms. It's not a short one. There's four long Psalms in the Bible, Psalm 18, 118 being the longest. It did take me six minutes to read this Psalm if I went straight through it. Um, it's, it's a chunk. It's 50 verses, and there's four lines in each verse. It's a lot. Uh, but I believe the Word of God is powerful and alive, and we need to make sure we look at the Word of God as we go through the Bible. And so this psalm is written by David, uh, and he really does model self-talk in an incredible way for us that's incredibly valuable to our lives. David is described as a man after God's own heart. He was one of the most influential kings in Israel's history. He was a warrior. He was an artistic poet, singing man, and he also knew how to kill people. You get what I'm saying? He was a leader, and he had family problems. He had all kinds of things he processed in his whole life. And Psalm 18 is like a, a microcosm of beginning to end of a young David to an old David looking over all of his life experience, which is an amazing, rich life experience. He wasn't no church boy that sat, in, sat inside all day. He, was an, he has an impressive life. And his self-narrative about how he thought about himself, other people, and God is incredibly instructive to us as people. This self-narrative, this self-talk is incredibly powerful once you understand what's happening. 
And you need to know some things about David to understand and appreciate what he's writing. It's not just in a vacuum, like a Hallmark card. There's, there's a lot of depth behind this passage. So you need to know that David was called and given a vision by the prophet at a very young age that he'd be the leader of Israel. He was anointed, and he said he would be appointed someday to be the king of Israel. But at that time, there was Saul, a, a bad king in Israel, who was in a monarchy at this time. Meaning Saul's son, Jonathan, and other sons of Saul would be the heir to the throne. David's off in the fields watching sheep, and Saul is the king of Israel. Saul is a tall, dark, handsome, head taller than everyone else, leader man, and they describe David as a ruddy boy, a red complexion, hair-faced boy out in the fields watching sheep. Saul was God's man that the nation of Israel picked. Uh, Saul was the nation of Israel's man that they picked. David was God's man, and David was described as a man after God's own heart. And instead of a direct path from 15, 16-year-old boy in the sheep, watching sheep, to the throne of Israel, he had a 15-year hiatus through the wilderness, through the highs and lows of living a life on the run. He has no family connection to the Saul at the beginning of the story. And he got a battlefield promotion after killing Goliath. Do we know what I'm talking about? David killed Goliath? Yes? Okay. David killed Goliath. You can YouTube that later. Uh, There's some live footage. It's great. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, so David killed Goliath, who was mocking the nation of Israel. And David came along and he killed him in an amazing story, which we're not talking about today. And then David gets promoted to be in the courts of Saul. And Saul is manic, depressive, you know, an, a mentally unstable man. In his rage, in his bipolar rage, he physically, verbally, and emotionally attacks a young teenage boy, David, for years. And it ended with David fleeing for his life after multiple assassination attempts from the hand of Saul and then Saul's people. Think of all that trauma. But to understand this, you need to know the pain and the heartache of David didn't start after he got famous for killing Goliath. It started back when he was a kid and his family. The, the prophet of God came to his father and said, bring me your sons. And David said, all right, here are my sons. And he said, what are these aren't that? Where's your other, any other sons? He's like, oh, there's that one. They call him the worthless one who's out watching the sheep. You take your lowest ranking slave and we say, we don't want you around the families. You go out there in the wilderness and watch sheep and keep our livestock healthy and safe. And if anything bad happens, you're in charge and you're responsible. And you like would hire a slave or your most lowest ranking servant to do that. He took his son and called him a worthless one. He didn't bring him to see the man of God, the prophet, when he was picking the new king. It's like a family photo, and he's not even on the edge of the photo like this. He's like off shot, not even invited to the family photo. Do you get the pain of his childhood, pain of his first employer, Saul? But you got to know, like, what made David tick? What was his thought life like? What was his self-narrative like? Because he experienced a great deal of human experiences here in life. So he's on the run, running for his life. He learns gritty leadership. He learns how God can use him in powerful ways, in the private life and the public life. And then those, that year came when he's finally, finally allowed to fulfill the vision of God about being a king of Israel. After 15 years, from 15 to 30-some-year-old man, he's living as a fugitive. It wasn't just his wealth and prosperity and peace, his entire existence. It was none of that, the blessing of God. It wasn't that. It was pain and heartache. It's like the floor of David's life fell out and he just kept falling. David lost so much in those 15 years. Not just did he lose time, he lost safety, he lost his youth, he lost his family, he lost his career, he lost his rights, he lost his comfort, he lost his connection with the people of God. And at times there, at the end of this time in the wilderness, he lost his connection with God. His life got bad, he was at rock bottom, and it seemed like God was just digging deeper and deeper and deeper into his circumstances. 
But there's a resiliency. There's a temperament to David that is amazing. His mental habits of how he viewed himself, others, and God that a wise man, a wise woman will perk up and pay attention to. Because life's going to hit you, church. And we need to be modeled how to think and respond biblically through the Word of God. Because think, we don't want to just be that dumb church that just white knuckles and changes their actions without changing our values, our beliefs, and our, and our understanding of why we do what we do. We need to look at why we do what we do. It's a lame theology just to change what we do. We need to understand our motivation, our habits, our beliefs that, that impact everything we do. If you change someone's mind, you change their entire life. This is a big opportunity. Perk up, Christians. This matters. In Psalm 18, we see he wasn't bitter. He wasn't the hero of the story. He wasn't the helper of the story. He wasn't the healer of everything. We see David pins an incredible insight into the psalm of unlocking the mind of some self-narrative that is incredibly helpful and healthy. Scholars think David wrote this as a young man. He rediscovered this psalm as an older king after he's lived much of life, which we'll get into. Think as you read this psalm, think David's whole life is flashing before his eyes. And he's thinking, remembering, and recalling things that happened as he pens this psalm. What do we see? What should we feel? As we go through this psalm, you should see a deep gratitude in God. And, and a delight in a life of trusting in God. And I want to ask you a question to hold me accountable as one of your pastors. If David were here and Elon Musk made a time machine and got him here and he's sitting next to you and you're translating on your phone what I'm saying and he's reading along in Hebrew what I'm saying in English, would he agree with me? That's your duty as a good reader of God's word to think if I'm off or not. Understand that? So you have a job here as we go through this. All right, I've prayed, I've introduced this, now we're going to jump in. Psalm 18, and we're going to look at the, the subheading that usually we skip. It helps give some context. It says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord who addresses the words of his servant, of, the, of his, this song to the Lord, on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Saul. So David composed a psalm after that 15-year season of on the run, running for his life was over. And this is a glorious moment in his life, a highlight mountaintop peak of his life, and he writes this psalm. We pick up in verse 1, it says this. I love you, O Lord, my strength. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The very first thing he writes is, I love you, O Lord, my strength. If we're looking at his self-narrative. And what makes David a tick? What makes him a winner? It's he views God as a love relationship with God, as his strength of his life. The word he used here, because you studied it this morning, I just want to tell everyone else who didn't study it, the word he used here to describe that love is a verb, is to love with all the tender feelings of nature. From my innermost bowels, the deepest part of me, of who I am as a person, what makes me tick is I have a love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. When was the last time you told the Lord that you loved him? Think about that. When was the last time you were praying to God and you're like, you know, God, I love you? Has it been days, weeks, months? I, I remember my mother, as a raising me and my siblings, she would pray and she'd have things she would say and things she would pray. And she would always say, like, I just want to tell you, Lord, that I love you. And I kind of thought that was strange. But now as I'm growing older and I have kids of my own, I'm like, I get that. There's a softening to your heart when you're like, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. You're my strength. It's an incredibly healthy posture of your heart. 
David declared that he loved the Lord, but he also decided to love the Lord. David has ups and downs. If you've studied David's life, he's got all kinds of emotional stuff he's worked through, all kinds of terrible things that have happened to him in his life. But in the ups and downs of his life, the heartbeat of his life is, I love you, Lord. Love, it consists of motive and reason. Why should David love God? We see in verse 2, David loved God because God has been so good to him. Verse 2, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. A rock gives you shade in the wilderness, shelter, protection, rest, and safety. A rock was key for survival. You can see your enemies coming. You can hide from the desert sun on the backside. You can get away from animals and sleep at night with peace. A horn means strength. At the end of his 15 years of living life on the run, this end of this trial, David was defined as a man, and he was defined as a king and a leader. And what do we see? We see David with nine names in those first two verses for God, honoring names for God. David knew God intimately in the trials and intimately in the dark desert seasons of his life. And he had a deep walk of God so much that he used his name nine different ways. I have my wife, Annie, and I call her Annie. Sometimes I call her Anne. Sometimes I call her, what do all couples call each other? Boo, uh, babe, hey babe, hey babe, hey babe. Remember when you were a young couple dating for the first time, you guys found, you know, test out pet names for each other, nicknames for each other. Remember that? You have that to look forward to, guys. You have that to look forward to. My wife used to call me Bedhead Razzle Dazzle Supreme. That was a funny nickname, and it didn't stick. And so that's great. Hopefully you can revive that one, okay? But there's, she loved me so much, she would give me names, different names. God was lo David loved God so much that he gave him nine different names. Nine names. He's not just God. God. He used different names of affection, of friendship, of relationship. We're trying to study the thought life, what made David tick in his self-narrative. He had a deep walk of God, a deep love for God, so deep that he loved God so much, not just use the same plain name every day. He used different names as he loved and worshiped God. Look at me at verse th three. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. I'm calling on the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I'm saved from my enemies. So Israel, at this time, he wrote this psalm, is on the verge of a civil war. The, the nation is incredibly fragile. They can't afford to fight each other because the nations around them will attack and take them over. Enemies is an active term, meaning the people in, the, in one side of the kingdom of Israel embraced him. The other half of the nation of Israel did not embrace his kingship because it's a monarch. So if this was social media online at this day and age when he was writing this, there would have been hashtag trending, go find Saul's son and keep the old monarch of Saul going would be trending on social media at this time on Twitter. There was people that did not like him, so much that half the nation of Israel was holding out and not calling him king at this time. He had active enemies. Not just Goliath, he's dead. Not just Saul, he's dead. He has active political, influential leaders and enemies in the nation of Israel. And David was saved. Spurgeon says not only was David saved, he was saved singing. We see that throughout David's writing. But this also talks about his prayer. What kind of prayer person are you? You're like, prayer person? What kind of prayer person are you? We're talking about prayer and thought life and your self-narrative and what you're passionate about. Are you a handout Christian? I'm here for a handout, God. I need a parking pass. I got pulled over. You know, oh, don't let that 
TPS report go through? Well, Lord, help get that, get me a promotion at work. I mean, what kind of prayer culture do you have in your thoughts about God? See that slot machine you're pulling all the time? David doesn't just ask God for help, which is appropriate and what we should do, but he goes deeper than that. He's got nine names for God. He goes deeper than that. He's proactively praising God for help for future enemies, help for future challenges. His prayer goes from just give me something to praising God. There's a depth of that. I don't know if you've been at a prayer meeting and someone's just, it's like a sick list prayer meeting, which is appropriate to pray for each other, but it's like pray for so-and-so and pray for so-and-so and pray for so-and-so who are sick. And that's not wrong. But if that's the depth, it, if that's it, there should be like breadth and depth and color and imagery. And there should be like amazing parts of prayer about the future and the past, about concerns and thoughts in your life and your heart. Your prayer life should be more than just, could I have something today, God? It should be deeper than that. You should be worshiping and praising God. You should be confessing sin to God. You should be adoring God. You should be asking from God, but also like acknowledging and praising his name. Our prayer life needs to be deep. Like David's walk with God was deep. Part of his self-talk was a deep talk with God. Look at verses four through six we're going to look at. And this is where most people live at in our city. Most people live at in this room. Verses four through six. Life is hard. Emotions can run high. And David is a very emotional, emotive man. And he writes a very vivid picture of the pain he's experiencing. David probably would be experiencing anxiety, depression, and torment from pain from the past of people. And the Bible is filled with examples of how to process mental pain and emotional pain. Look at look with me at verses 4 through 6. And the cords of death encompass me, and the torrents of destruction assail me. The cords of Sheol entangle me, and the snares of death confront me. And in my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. And from his temple he heard my voice, and, from, and my cry to him reached his ears. The temple wasn't built yet. David's son built this temple later. But the temple he's talking about is the temple in heaven. In those days, as a king, you had to physically lead your army into battle. You, you couldn't sit in a big desk and have generals send a drone strike to kill your enemies with razor blades. You had to physically lead your army into battle. What kind of warrior king was David? He was a man who led from the front. David was a special forces elite warrior. He knew what it meant to take someone's life. He knew how to kill people. He was familiar with death. He made a career of killing the enemies of the nation of Israel. He was able to live off the land. If you dropped David in Mongolia, he would compete really well in the Alone Wilderness Survival Show. He was incredibly tough. Incredibly tough. When I read about David and his mighty men, I read those passages to my kids at an early age. I named two of my kids' middle names after some of the mighty men. It was basically a it was basically like you, brother, and <laughs> just a bunch of dangerous, big, scary warriors who made a career of hurting the enemy of God. Do you understand? That was his game face. You have to lead some battle-tough men in some brutal situations. If you ever read some amazing stories of the people of God and the nation of Israel fighting the enemies of God, read about David's mighty men. It is amazing, awesome passages. If you have, it just makes you want to run through a wall. It's, it's amazing. But think about this. He's very tough, but he also has a very tender heart towards God. His self-talk is tough, but tender. He knows when to flip the switch and go from one extreme to the other. David practices radical candor with God about what he's really feeling and radical candor with the people that he's leading. He's incredibly authentic. 
his self-narrative, he doesn't play that game. When we get into distress like David, we have to pray. We've got to be raw and authentic with our emotions like verses 4 through 6 shows. You can't pretend to pray to God about what you're feeling. God knows what you're feeling. He created you. He knows everything that's happening in you. From a baby in your mother's womb, he saw life begin, and he's going to watch you till you die. He knows the emotions that are happening in your heart better than you do. You have to take those emotions to God for your self-talk. You have to talk that out to God. And then David rolls right into an incredibly vivid picture, an amazing vivid picture. It feels like, here comes God. Look at, look at these next passages. Close your eyes. This time you can close your eyes. Close your eyes, everyone. I want you to picture in your mind as I read this to you. Then the earth reeled and rocked, and the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherubim and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick, thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. Amen? You're like, what is that about? David is crazy descriptive and exact. His attention to detail is amazing, and he shows that God is angry. He's angry about what is happening, and he reveals God's wrath. And David shows an incredible details that leave us wondering, what is David writing about? And this entire psalm is very uh, Christ-centric. It's very, you, can, you should be able to see Christ throughout this entire passage. And at the end of our time, I will go back and show you. Uh, I was at a conference with an author and a pastor. I respect his ministry. He said, when you're preaching through the Bible, if you don't see a way to Christ, make a way to Christ. Uh, there's a scarlet thread that goes throughout the entire Bible. That's the purpose of the whole Bible is the cross of Christ. And there's a beginning and you look forward to Christ in the Old Testament. You look back to Christ in the New Testament. And we need to see Christ in this passage. There's a parallel here between David's life and writing and the prophecy of Christ and his, what he did and his, his work. This whole psalm is incredibly messianic, and it's still applied to David, but it also applies to Christ. You know who is both tender and tough, who is both familiar with death and destruction, who bend the natural worlds that we just read about with authority over the supernatural and the natural, where the wind and the waves obeyed him, sickness had to flee his presence, and dead people rose around him? Jesus. I'm giving you science school questions here. Jesus. Say Jesus. <laughs> Four through six, we're talking about Jesus, people. Um, uh, verse 13. No, I'm wrong on what I referenced. I just said. Verse 13, though, is where we're at. Verse 13, it says this. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed with forth lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. What does David not say? He does not say God was mad. He goes way deeper than that. There's so much passion and drama and much imagery and vivid pageantry in this passage. And we see a personal intervention of God to help his servant. God is right on time all the time. And he comes through to help his servant. So what is happening? David is looking back and he remembers and recalls God's deliverance over those 15 years of on the run in the wilderness. 
he know we know that God has gone we know that David had gone to hell and back to live out what God has called him to do for his life and God delivered him every step of the way there's a phrase there the foundations of the world lay bare that's terminology that emphasizes the judgment of God on the earth in the midst of the trial in the midst of the trial hard to see when things are hard to see the hand of God David saw the hand of God felt the breath of God saw the fingerprints of God in his life usually we see the hand of God, the fingerprints of God on our trial life after we're through the trial. But when we're in the pain of the trial of those 15 years in the wilderness, we don't see God. It's because we're not worshiping God and going to God as our friend. When we get through the hard times in life, then we look back and think, oh, God took care of me in my 20s. God took care of me in my high school years. God took care of me and I saw his hand protecting and leading and guiding me up till here. But when we're in the trial, we miss God because we aren't found worshiping in our pain, Christians. David experienced more pain than probably any of us in this room. And he models for us how to manage that pain. Verse 16, he sent him from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, from those who were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delights in me. Only God gave the victory to David. It's not a David self-made victory. This is key, church. We need to listen up. In verse 19, in Jesus Christ, God delights in us. The glory of the gospel is not just that God puts up with you, Christian, but he is passionate about you. He delights in you. God is in the people-saving business, the life transformation business, and he delights to deliver you, Christian. Verse 20, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands, he rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. He's talking about those painful seasons of his life. For all his rules were before me, and his statues I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands in his sight. During that 15-year time of testing, David was challenged to respond in unrighteous ways. He had the opportunity to kill his enemy, Saul, who was hunting him multiple times. He had the opportunity to raise his hand against God and rebel against God and live a compromised life and quit on the call of God on his life. What is David not saying? David is not saying he was a sinless, perfect person. He is saying because he devoted himself to the Lord and a life of obedience to God's word, it resulted in a godly life. This was not a claim of David being a sinless, perfect person. In 1 Samuel 29 and 30, before he got raised up to this position to becoming the king of Israel, after Saul died in battle, David was in a season of backsliding and spiritual decline. 1 Samuel 29 and 30. This is even before we know what happened to Bathsheba when he committed adultery with another man's wife had a baby with her, she became pregnant, and instead of confessing his sin, he killed her husband. That happens later in his life, when he's king of Israel. David was a man who could be questioned and corrected. And a leader that you cannot question and correct does questionable things. But, you know, one greater than David, who did live, love, and lead the perfect life, whose hands were blameless and guilt-free and sinless, a perfectly righteous person, with clean hands, the son of David, the Messiah King. This whole passage echoes Christ. It echoes the resurrection, it echoes glorification. This psalm has 
two places, scholars think. One where he wrote it in his early 30s, another time he wrote it in the end of his life. And this is true of David's life, looking forward into opportunity and looking back on a whole career of being a king in Israel. And old David would have refound and rediscovered and reread this and agreed with this. And a young David wrote this. There's incredibly dark chapters of David's life that are coming. And David knew who he was and he found who he was and he found his righteousness in the work of God, his friend, his savior. David wasn't the hero of the story. David was, God was the hero of David's story, but David was not the king of the kingdom. It was God's the king of his heart and king of this kingdom. David was not the hero, God was. This talks about sin. How does David think about his self-talk about sin? In verse 23, in some translations, it says, my sin. Your Bible might say a different wording of that my sin phrase. But David knew what his tendencies to sin were. Certain sins were more tempting to David than they were to other people around him. Like there's a $300 million casino showing up in Lincoln, supposedly, the next couple months or years or whatever. I'm not going to be tempted to go and gamble there. You know, I, I gambled once in college at a slot machine. It was like 10 bucks or 5 bucks or 6 bucks. I was like, that was stupid. I've never been back again. I'm not tempted to gamble. Others here might be tempted to gamble. Do you get what I'm saying? There's sin that applies to you and sin that doesn't, isn't your temptation. But we all have my sin, specific kind of sin that we struggle with. We've got to know there's specific kind of things that trigger that response of going to that my sin. If it's a big win, a big loss, I'm wasting time or I'm stressed out by things, I'm frustrated or insecure, we all run to a proneness to run to a certain kind of sin. And that is our specialized sin patterns we have. The Bible says every one of us has turned to our own way. We all have a tendency to sin. Psalm 51, after he, after he, after he has a baby with another man's wife and kills her husband and is approached by the prophet of God, we see in Psalm 51, David genuinely changing and repenting from his sin. That focus that's a focus on David's sin, my sin. That's how we focus about my sin. But what about other people's sin towards me? What about other wrong things men and women do to attack and hurt me? Emotionally, psychologically, mentally, physically. What about people's sin to me? One thing that's the problems in here, but what the problems out there too? How do you think about other people's sins? And this matters. And this really kept David's self-talk out of the victim mentality. Look at verse 25. It talks about, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. Torturous means an um, astute or shrewd. In Hebrew, that means to twist. Verse 27, for you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. There's basically a principle here David's unpacking for us. That we like to treat ourselves one way and other people a different way. We want to give forgiveness for my sin, but you better get called out. The boss is going to let me get off the hook, but you better get ran up. I get a pass, you get a penalty. I get two scoops of ice cream, you get one scoop of ice cream. Remember your childhood? No? Your childhood was amazing. But the idea here is what you sow, you reap. Matthew 7, 2. For with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. There's a warning here. We tend to measure differently. One stick for measuring myself and a different yardstick for measuring you. Generous of me, stingy of you. 
David is about to step in from like lions and tigers and bears and kings and warriors and people trying to physically kill him to more of a mental game of pain and leadership. Where he has this, this leader, this clan, this business leader, this influential leader, this, this interesting priest, this other national king. He's about to go to like a pain of being a soldier to pain of being a king. And this is like blue collar life and death. This is white collar life and death. It's a different cerebral kind of pain. And there's a way to deal with people. Humble people, haughty people, crooked people, shrewd people, pure people, unpure people, blameless people, corrupt people, merciful people. There's a way to work with other people's pain when they come after you. And David models for us how to be not naive and taken advantage of, but be generous with those people. Verse 28, for it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. Light and darkness was a real thing at that day and age. I mean, when the lights went out, it was dark. When the sun went down, the lights went out. <laughs> it was over. It wasn't like we can plug it back in. Light and dark was a thing. You had to work in the light. And when night came, you had to be ready for the night. Verse 29, for by you, I can run against a troop. And with my God, I can leap over a wall. The Lord enabled, encouraged, and energized David to step into this new chapter of his life. So not just is David going all Captain America on the enemies of God, but David stepping into this political kingdom world. I mean, think, he's out in the desert with, you know, out in the field of sheep, and then he's running for his life with a group of misfit men who learn how to fight and kill people together, and they're hired mercenaries for a while, and then now he's stepping into the palace of Israel with the establishment and all these different people that have been around for generations. That is a different skill set he needs to learn, a different self-thought, self-talk he needs to engage in. And just like God enabled, encouraged, and energized him here, he's going to help him here. But notice in the last passage, David's self-talk is always rooted in the greatness of God. Verse 29, always rooted in the greatness of God. But with you, I can. With my God, I will. It's rooted in the greatness of God. He's not the hero of the story. He's not the victim of the story. God is the hero of the story. And there's a trap. As things go well, my head tends to grow. As people, our head grows. We're like, yeah, I am good. The newspaper is right. My comments about this is right. I'm the man. As David's head didn't grow, you'll see as you read this passage, as things went well, David's head seemed to shrink, the exact opposite. And he praised God and was grateful for God even more. Verse 30, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield to all who take refuge in him. David praises God when he looks back on his life. He praises God for his present strength to live the day. And he's praising God for his future proven help of the future day. That you should underline verse, verse 30. It talks about the word of the Lord proves true. Pull out your pens, people, and underline that line in that passage. The word of the Lord proves true. Can we get an amen as a church? Okay, what about over here? Amen? <laughs> the word of the Lord proves true. In your teenage years, going through high school, did the word of the Lord prove true? Amen. Amen. What about your 20s, the college years? Did the word of the Lord prove true? Amen. What about your 30s? The word of the Lord prove true? Amen. What about 30 and beyond? Did the word of the Lord prove true? Amen. 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 That is, God is true, and He comes through all the time, Christians. And our hope is in God. Not that I proved true, or my scheming proved true, or I conned my way there, I manipulated my way there. It's the word the Lord proved true. Time and time again, season and season again, God came through. 
Verse 31, for who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength made my way blameless. These are verses that are talking about the gentleness of God's salvation for us. Verse 33, he made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me securely on the heights. He trained my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. So David's self-talk, these things that he's thinking about, in the highlight, high-stakes situation of his life, when he walked into a rooted community group for the first time, and he's like, I got to buy a Bible for the first time, and someone's got to tell me what to not buy a weird Bible, but I buy a normal Bible. <laughs> when you walk into situations, God needs to give you strength and skill and security for that high-stakes situation, Christian, because we trust in him, not in ourselves. We trust in God coming through, not in us coming through. Verse 35, for you've given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supports me and your gentleness made me great. Your right hand supports me. I'm sorry, guys. Left-handed people, that was yesterday. Right hand, this is today in the whole world. Sorry if I, it's the Bible. Uh, your right hand at that time was used as, your right hand was used for, your, was your strong hand, it was used for skillful labor. The special forces, David, was great. But the gentleness of God made him greater. Men and women, we need to have a big view of God and a small view of self. And that when I get to that high stakes situation, God got me there, God's gonna keep me there, and God's gonna grow me there as I lean into God and lift him up and lift myself down. Verse 36 You gave a wide place for my feet under me, my feet did not slip. This self talk about wide places, David gives credit to God. When times are peaceful and easy and things are going well in my career, in my marriage, in my home, I don't quietly go like this. That's stupid. That's not how David thought. I think I got to go like this and give God credit and praise. I'm conditioning and training myself to think and give God praise in the good times and the bad times. Verse 37. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle, and you made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, and he did not answer them. I beat them fine like dust before the wind. I can cast them out like the mire of the streets. Just again, notice how quickly, as quick as possible, David talks himself down and God up. In verses 43 through 50, we see David's, uh, the coming kingdom of the Messiah is the big thing. You delivered me from the strife of the people. You made me the head of the nations. People who I do not even know come and serve me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. David immediately became the king of the southern tribes, but the northern tribes later slowly came to him and declared their loyalty to him. That's a humbling experience when God raises up the enemies and puts them under you. But what was David's self-talk when things went well? As things went right for David, instead of his head growing, his head shrunk, Christian. Verse 46, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. Anyone? Does that sound like a song we sang? The Lord lives. The Lord is and blessed be my just my church there in Aurora that I was a part of growing up. Yes, yes. All right, if you're younger than me, you don't know what I'm talking about. But if you're my age on up, you might have sang this song growing up uh, as a. But think about verse two and verse forty-six. He brings up this idea of my rock. 
Verse 42, the Lord is my rock. Verse 46, blessed be my rock. There's this appreciation that God is the salvation of his life, the stability of life, the anchor in his life is God. And that's the God he loves. Verse 47, the Lord who gave me vengeance and subdued people under me. He rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. That's Saul's personal shout out. But his self-talk, his perspective on promotions. David's getting a massive promotion right now. From a guy running in the desert to the king of Israel. Wilderness to the king and the kingdom. His perspective on his promotion is he didn't manipulate his way there. He didn't con his way there. He didn't kill Saul to get there. He didn't play the political game. He didn't woo people. He didn't give a bunch of money to get that position. He trusted that God would raise him up and raise him down. He was only existing on the decision of God to keep him in that position. It's kind of like the perspective you brought, God brought me into this world, into this role, and he can take me out of this world. He held that role that God gave him with an open hand. He didn't grasp onto it. He held it open-handedly. Verse 49, for this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. So this big idea in Psalms is, are usually planted at the beginning and the end of the chapter. The main themes of the psalm, there's a few main themes, but the beginning and the end of the chapter tends to be the main soundbite you need to hold on to to grasp Psalm 18. Verse 1 is, I love you, O Lord, my strength. And then verse 50 is, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. As we conclude, David is cracking the code of how to think about life and process the good times and the bad times, the times of stress and the times of prosperity. And in many ways, what God did in and through David and his kingdom was a prophecy of what he would do with a greater one than David. Greater works in and through the Messiah, Jesus, the descendant of David. Think about these passages and these phrases and how they apply to Christ. So I just went through this from David's perspective, which is how it works. But this also could easily and does apply to Christ. I could see Jesus saying, I love you, Lord. The Lord is my rock, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, where I seek refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I was saved from my enemies. The ropes of death were wrapped around me. The torrents of destruction terrified me. The ropes of Sheol entangled me, and snares of death confronted me. I called the Lord in my distress, and I cried to my God for help. And, his temp and from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. That could be easily about Jesus' death. That can easily make you think about Jesus and Christ and his death. Verses 7 through 18, this talks about Jesus' resurrection. The earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains trembled. That happened at the resurrection. They shook because he burned with anger. Smoke rose from his nostrils and consuming fire from his mouth. Coals were set ablaze by it. He bent the heavens and came down. Total darkness beneath his feet. He rode on a cherubim and flew soaring on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place and strong storm clouds his canopy around him. From the radiance of his presence, his clouds swept onward with hails and blazing coals. The Lord thundered and from heaven, the most high made his voice heard. He shot his arrows and scattered them. He hurled lightning bolts and routed them. The depth of the sea were visible and the foundations of the world were exposed. At the rebuke, Lord, at your rebuke, Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils, 
He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He pulled me out of the deep water and rescued me from my enemies, my powerful enemies, those who hated me. They confronted me on the day of calamity and by the Lord was my support. That's the resurrection of Jesus. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. This is the exaltation of Jesus. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. He repaid me according to the cleanliness of my hands, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not turned from my God to wickedness. Indeed, I let all his ordinances guide me. We know that throughout the Gospels. He perfectly obeyed everything that was required of him. And have not dis disregarded his statutes. I was blameless towards him and kept myself from my iniquity. So the Lord repaid me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands in his sight. With the faithful, you prove yourself faithful. With the blameless, you prove yourself blameless. With the pure, you prove yourself pure. And with the crooked, you prove yourself shrewd. For you rescue and oppress people, but you humble those with haughty eyes. The, the exaltation of Christ. Verse 28, we're looking at the victory of Christ. The Lord, Lord, you're, you light my lamp. My God illuminates my darkness. And with my God, I can attack a barricade. And with my God, I can leap over a wall. God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is pure. And he's a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is a rock? Only our God. God, he clothes me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He sets me securely on the heights he trains my hands for war, and my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand upholds me, and your humility exalts me. You make a spacious place beneath me for my feet, and my ankles did not give way. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back until they were wiped out. I crushed them, and they, fall, and they cannot get up. They fall beneath my feet. You have clothed me of strength for battle. You subdue my adversaries beneath me. You have made my enemies retreat before them. I annihilate those who hate me. They cry for help, but there is no one to save them. They cry to the Lord, but he does not answer them. I pulverize them like dust before the wind. I trample them like mud in the streets. The victory of Christ. And this last seven verses suggest the kingdom of Christ. You have freed me from the, from the feuds among the people. You have anointed me as the head of nations. The people I had not known serve me. Foreigners submit to me cringing. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners lose heart and come trembling from their, found, from their fortifications. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of our salvation. God, he grants me vengeance. He subdues the people under me. He frees me from my enemies. You exalt me above my adversaries. You rescue me from violent men. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among all the nations, Lord. I will sing praise about your name. He gives great victories to his king, and he shows loyalty to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. It could be both true for David's life and a foreshadow prophecy about Jesus in his life. One greater than David came. And he lived and he conquered and he lived a perfect life. So what does this apply to you? What do you need to do with this? We share in both Christ's suffering. We share in his resurrection. We share in his exaltation. We share in his victory. And we share in his kingdom as Christ followers. Now, obviously, it's a lighter version of what Christ did. But we share in the good times and the bad times with Christ. But what do you need to do? We have a self-narrative, Christian. And it might be great. Maybe your parents were like really biblically wired in and they were really worried about you having biblical theology and a biblical worldview and a correct biblical view of yourself and others and pain and prosperity and good times and bad times. 
and a correct biblical view of God. That might have been your default setting as a kid. That's probably not your default setting of most of you. There's some kids in this room, we're working hard as parents trying to do that, but our parents tried and they did a great job. But we need to be rewiring our mind and our self-talk to be biblical. Because I'm not going to die and go and spend eternity with this culture. I'm not going to die and spend eternity with social media. I'm going to die and spend eternity with Christ and his kingdom. And I need to think biblically now. I am training and conditioning my mind how to respond now. For where I am today. Someday it's going to be harder. It's going to be darker. It could be better. We don't know what the future holds, but we know what God calls us to walk and think today. And David lays out so much good stuff. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Christ, you don't understand what we're talking about. You need to wrestle with Jesus. You need to wrestle with, is God true? Is God real? Can I trust him with my life? You need to receive forgiveness. You need to confess you're a sinner, receive the forgiveness of God, and let him change and transform and train and equip your life like David was. You've got to yield your heart and your knee and your life to Christ. You cannot earn God's salvation. You cannot be perfect. I can prove it to you in the lobby if you want. Men and women, if you don't know Christ, you need to know Christ. You need to become a follower of Christ. And if you are a Christian, you do subscribe to Christianity, we have to let our mind be renewed by the word of God. We cannot let social media, our phones, our culture, our job, our upbringing be the trajectory we live on the rest of our lives. That is stupid. We're not stupid. We're smart. That's what our teachers told us in kindergarten. We're smart. <laughs> Men and women, become smarter emotionally and biblically at how you think. David models it for us in an amazing way in Psalm 18. The Lord lives, blessed be my rock, and exalted is the God of our salvation. I love you, Lord. It starts and stops in so many different parts of Psalm 18. As you rewire your thought processes on life and the self-narrative you have. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for Psalm 18. I pray that the Word of God would just instruct and convict lives today. We need you to help us to really wrestle with the passage and make it, make it land in our hearts. and Help us to walk away with obedience as a posture of our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.